This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom, it's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Time to nerd out in style. It's episode 439 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. So many exciting things to talk about on the show this week. As a matter of fact, going to talk about some lounge flies. So if you're at New York Comic Con looking for your lounge fly stuff, going to talk to Liz De Silva and Derek Baca, who are the vice presidents of Creative Innovation and Vision, I believe is their title. I'll ask them to kind of confirm that here in a couple minutes. Just about all the great things that are coming from Loungefly and how they kind of come up with which designs go where and which characters get featured and stuff like that. And if your feedback really matters, I'll ask them about that as well. So really, really excited to be talking about Loungefly this week, especially since I can't be at New York Comic Con. I want to get a little bit of the vibes with that. Also going to talk about talk to CJ Box about his new Cassie Duel novel, that is Treasure State. Of course, if you know Big Sky on a on ABC, this is the guy that writes the Cassie Duel novels. So if you're if you're not picking up those yet, here I'm going to give you a reason why you should be reading these novels as well, because there's a lot of great story there to tell. Also, going to talk about Werewolf by Night. Going to give you my spoiler-ish review of that. And yeah, I'm going to dive into the Super Mario trailer. Don't worry about that. I'll talk about that and talk about a couple others. We'll talk about Velma and Slumberland. As well, but up first, hey, let's talk about Lounge Fly with Liz De Silva and Derek Baca. Let's talk to them next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Brett Bassinger from DC Star Girl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether you're going to New York Comic Con or not, it's easy to be excited about the brand Lounge Fly. I mean, when I was at San Diego Comic Con, I was blown away with the setup that they had there and all of the new products. And who better to talk about it than two of the major reasons for their success? It's Liz De Silva and Derek Baca. How are you both doing? Great. Thank you for having us. Yeah, appreciate the, uh, the the time today. No, no problem. Thank you for taking the time. As a matter of fact, we were just kind of talking off the air about, about your, your titles 
at Loungefly. <laughs> so for anybody that doesn't know, it's kind of changed a little bit. So what's the official long title on the letterhead now? Our positions have kind of evolved over our time at Loungefly, and we now are truly a team and have the same title of Senior Vice Presidents of Creative Innovation and Vision. Yeah, throughout, throughout of our experience at Loungefly for the nearly four years, four years, four yeah. years now, We've all worn lots of different hats. Uh, Liz has been the head of social media. I was the head of the website. I was the head of sales. Liz has always been managing like the creative side. So what we've always done together is actually a lot of concepting and a lot of creative in terms of the vision of the brand. Business development. And business development. So, but we've never like been able, because we were a small little team when Funko purchased and we came on board small team trying to build the infrastructure. So we all had lots of different hats, but now as we go forward, you know, Brian Mariotti, it wants us to focus on what we do best. And so that's why they kind of merge us together to really set the direction. And not just us, like the whole team, we're, we're finally growing to a size that people can have one job and be really focused and mm -hmm. good at that job. So we're getting the infrastructure that the, the brand really needs, which is great. It's funny that you talk about hats, because I feel like that's the one thing you guys don't actually make. Yeah, you guys make so many. We do. We do. Oh, you do make hats. Well, we I stand corrected this, then. This year we have some beanies, but we've done. So what people don't always know that Loungefly is a design house. And with Funko owning it, we actually do all of the Funko the products that are at that Walmart, makes sense. Target. And we have done like trucker hats and dad caps and stuff like that. But they have the Funko branding on it. Not necessarily Loungefly branding, but it's the Funko. So we do. And we did just release a beanie and scarf and socks for our fall collection on loungefly.com. So there you go. See, yeah. look at that. But I talk about that for a second to expand on it a little bit because this brand has expanded so much over the years since the beginning. What's it like for you all having been there for so long to see this brand just gradually grow exponentially, it seems like, especially in the last couple of years with Funko coming on board? I think the reason we were brought in was to expand the brand. So we were hired by Funko to come in and, and kind of help the direction of the brand. And the goal of Funko was always for Loungefly to expand into more of a lifestyle brand. And Derek and I coming from the apparel industry, that was a that was an easy first step for us to get the brand into apparel. And now as we look forward, you're going to see things like pets and other fun things. We have a lot in the works, stationery. So to us, it's amazing because to see where Loungefly was four years ago to now, it's incredible, the growth and, and what the team was able to accomplish. And I've known the brand for over the 20 years. So I was a buyer as an old job mm -hmm. long time ago. So I actually bought from Loungefly when they first started. And so I've known just the overall, you know, the quality of the brand, but it was kind of like I was, I was at Hot Topic. So I was, you know, a buyer and a divisional. And so just great partnership with that. We still have that partnership today as well. So just knowing them, our biggest goal when we came on board was to become a lifestyle brand, not just an accessory company. And so I think that's how you do that through expansion, through categories to become that lifestyle brand. It's funny. I was talking to somebody the other day and I, and I was mentioning Loungefly and they said to me, oh, they make those cool Disney backpacks or the Disney people. I'm like, well, no, they're not the Disney people per se. I mean, that's obviously something you're known very well for, but what is it like also to kind of step away from that? Cause there, there's a lot of Disney stuff, but I'm seeing, you know, stranger things. You've got some cool black Adam stuff that's coming out now as well. So how do you kind of expand on that a little bit? So people don't go, oh, well, they're the Disney brand. Not that there's anything wrong with that, of course, but you know, to expand beyond that as well. 
yeah, we definitely wanted to to get away from that. We love Disney. Personally, we love Disney. Um, our house is full of it. We're pass holders. But as a brand, you know, we definitely wanted to diversify. So I think in the first year that we joined, we definitely signed some new licenses. And that some of that in the last year has been some of our best sellers. Like Scooby-Doo has done mm-hmm. really well with our fans. Um, we're getting into sports and music. music. I think a big thing too is who our retail partners have been, right? So Disney Parks has obviously been a very big partner of us and they're Mm -hmm. global, right? So you see a lot of that out there, but we actually have partnerships with Universal Parks that we're growing and building that. So whether it's Harry Potter merchandise or it's Transformers, all those type of things, we work with SeaWorld, we work with the Biltmore Hotel, like these experiential type of opportunities is how we want to like, you know, expand our brand to be able to get all these different kinds of license opportunities. Yeah, we want to be, you know, we're the brand that people come to when they want to have these like really innovative, fun accessories. And um, I think we're getting to a place that we're not just that Disney backpack company. We want to be that (laughs) geeky Gucci. (laughs) Oh, geeky Gucci. I like that. See, you've already got the name Loungefly. You can't change it now. It's too well known. You can't change it now. But well, I guess trademarks, we can't use Gucci either. But well, I just then, like well, then there you go. <laughs> we'll just put it in. We'll just put it in air quotes and be done with it. Yeah. <laughs> so I did want to ask, though, because people have, have asked me, too, and I got this a couple times at Comic-Con. They're like, oh, I wish Loungefly had this from this certain particular. You know, this is my favorite show or my, my favorite movie. I'd like to get something from this, that or the other thing. So how are these products uh, chosen? And I, I actually talked to somebody from Funk about this at Comic-Con. How is the fan feedback? How much does that drive what products actually make it out there? It definitely does. I feel like people maybe think, oh, I comment on TikTok or on Instagram and like nobody cares. We do care. We do read them. We personally read a lot. And our social team actually takes all of that feedback and puts it into a condensed report for us that we get. So we actually do get all of the fan feedback and we do definitely take that into account if we're hearing consistently that fans want this or uh, if there's like a breakout character in in a new movie that everyone's loving and we also take into account you know what our retailers are looking for so as we're looking at new licenses we always are looking at you know where would where would we do exclusives for this who would it make sense for and there's there's a process like that but we're, we're also really willing to like take a chance now and then and try something new and different just like I think Funko is as well. I think one of the biggest reasons for the recent success of Loungefly has been the community that Loungefly is an approachable brand. I would say that we connect personally with fans, customers, influencers like directly like you have a direct link to that. And so with all and we also service I, and I always call it the the forgotten tier of distribution and retail is the mom and pops, right? And so we really focus on driving a lot of business. We have shop small Saturdays where we focus on a little shop that is is supporting us and things like that. And a lot of these shops have done so well that they can get their own exclusives. And so able to offer them and they're really close to their communities as well because their fans are, I wish I had this. So they'll come to us with ideas. Look, we're getting requests for this okay, well, let us put our spin on it and then we can offer that. And so it's another, so it's not just the big retailers that are getting exclusives. It's a lot of these mama pops are actually to really service those communities for us because without the community of Loungefly and how passionate they are, I'm sure you can go on any kind of forum or Facebook or this and that, they're, they're passionate, but like 
we like to have that connectivity because I don't feel there's many brands that really do have a direct source connection to their fans. And those and those boutique retailers, they really do make like an event out of Loungefly. Like tonight is our uh, very popular pre-order night for the small shops. So it's uh, the first chance for Loungefly fans to pre-order the next catalog and the small shops really get behind that. They make events out of it. They work with, you know, content creators and influencers and, and really make like a whole night of it. So I know I always look forward to tonight. 9 p.m. PST, yep. the last night of a month is always pre-order night for lounge flights. So you'll have all the mom pops going wild. Yep. And a lot of them launch their, their own exclusives at that time. So it's a really fun night. I have a couple of friends that do this, actually. They're doing their grand reopening this weekend. So that it kind of makes, I know exactly what you're talking about there. So I want to talk to you about, you have your casual fans that'll jump on for just, oh, I like this movie. I'm going to buy the stuff from this. But then you've got the collectors. And boy, let me tell you, those collectors, they, they, those are the ones that are camping out. They're standing in line at cons and things like that. So how is it for you all with the casual fans versus collectors to co- kind of make sure that there's, something for everyone and and accessibility for everyone too, because, you know, the exclusives flying out the door from collectors and things like that. How do you make it so pretty much everybody gets that opportunity to get that favorite item that they want, no matter where they're standing on the, in their collecting. I think this has been a learning process for us. I think when we first came on board and we started the idea of these exclusives, because in accessories, there's never really been a collectible accessory company, right? Like, I've never seen it before where you like have exclusives and people go crazy. So at first we started doing a couple bags and like a couple pins and we were doing like 600 pieces. Right. So this is kind of before the pandemic and then going into it. Right. When the pandemic hit, everyone's at home. So like the whole resale market went through the roof. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we started getting a ton of feedback going really 600 pieces, all the bots or the, the scalpers or the resellers, they got it all. I didn't get anything. Right. So it took a little bit of a learning process. Like what's the right unit? You don't want to do a ton because Mm -hmm. you have to take the collector into account and you want to feel special that you've got something, right? That's an exclusive type of piece that it's not for everybody. It is a first come first serve. It's finding that balance. Like I think every item has that. Yeah. And we also try to, if if there was an exclusive that sold out and, and is done, whether it was a retailer on our line, and we see that there was a lot of interest in people that missed it. We try to follow it up with something. We try to offer you knowing that that was something you were interested in. We try to offer something else. So we definitely always try to say, if you miss out on something, keep watching because we'll definitely be coming with something else. Like we pay attention to those things. When I used to run social media, it was like almost heartbreaking for me to I'm hear sure. people that were so upset and like we're designing these bags and you want everyone to have them and for it to be a negative experience because someone's upset was really difficult so we we really do pay attention to that especially on a rare occasion we'll reorder something not a con anything at a con that's course, it that's right. all the units that's done but on exclusives that something is just so crazy it blows out we will and then retailers do if they have out. a good reaction a lot of times the retailers will reorder and they have those decisions to make yeah and i always tell all of our partners there's always a limited edition don't put a number to it like yeah. like it's it's limited that's why i say i always say limited release that's what disney does right they say limited release mm-hmm. not limited edition because edition makes like one of two thousand or finite <laughs> you cannot do anything more than that so if it's your exclusive you just release this is our exclusive 
And if it sells out, then you can get back into your exclusive, like but you own it forever. We're personally collectors of a lot of things. If so you we, don't see the back. So oh, we, I yeah, see. Yeah, I see. Kind of see. But we get it. Like we get it. We've experienced the disappointment ourselves. Like we completely understand. So we definitely do try to take learnings and, and find that balance to keep everyone happy. Really quickly, before we talk about New York Comic Con, I want to talk about Stitch Shop for a second, because I think that's a really, really cool thing where it's you're focusing a lot on body positivity. You've got a really good amount of size ranges, which I think is great because sometimes with, with brands like this, you try and you're like, oh, I want this thing. Well, they don't have my size and that's a bummer sort of thing. So how important was it to make that be a focus of not just in the sizing, but in the in the design of the Stitch Shop stuff as well to make sure you had that body positivity aspect to it? For us, that was super important. Me personally, working in the apparel industry my whole career and, you know, going out comp shopping and seeing stores that literally only go to a size eight or, you know, a large. And I've been every size from a size six to a 14 in my life. And seeing the the lack of especially licensed product in, in those size inclusive ranges, we definitely knew there was white space in the market and there was a need for more products. So there was never any question that Stitch Shop was going to be extra small to 4X. Like that was a top priority. And there's challenges with that, right? There's challenges and costs that goes along with that, but it's it's important. It's worth it. And not just Stitch Shop. In the bags, we're constantly reevaluating strap size, strap length. That was the first thing we did when we came to the company yeah. is looking listening to feedback going i would love to wear your bag but i can't even put it around my arm no it was hard like it was actually we were on main street in disneyland and somebody came up and was asking about my bag and that was the feedback they they gave me once they realized that we worked for the company that they loved the bags but they they couldn't get them on they weren't comfortable and i was like this is like unacceptable and right away we changed all the strap lengths. And to this day, we do approvals once a week of product for mainline. And we sit there for a few hours and I put on the bags and I have different people in the office put on the bags. We're constantly double checking that. Like, how is it hanging on the body? Is it comfortable for all different sizes? Whether you're a size extra small or, you know, a 4X, I want, we, we definitely want that bag or those clothes to be comfortable. And when we're looking at Stitch Shop, especially we build elastic into the back of our waist and we have elasticized sleeves like everything is built for comfort so that you can you know look amazing in your fandom and also be you know super comfortable there's not a single stitch shop piece that you can't wear to disneyland all day long and ride rides and be good to go and that led us to our strategy for lf apparel as well right so we have our stitch shop which is our higher end dress line but it's like vintage inspired but then lounge fly apparel which is our casual collection and that's where we really want to do everything in unisex sizes yep. and but make those again, the small through the three X. I mean, I'm a large human. So like I, I've never really been able outside of some t-shirts and maybe a three X that you could find some license. But in terms of like these button ups, which have been really successful for us in a three X, like our customers are all ranges. So like I actually have people that came up to us just to talk about this is the first company. I love your guys' 3X shirts because this is the <laughs> first 3X that actually fits like a 3X and doesn't feel like a 1X or an extra large that slim fit or whatever that is. Because yeah, it, no, it, it, there's no, love that. there's nothing slim fit on our lounge fly apparel collection. It's definitely made for comfort. 
and it's all, you know, just easy to throw on with a pair of jeans or a pair of shorts, go to the park, go to Target, do what you got to do. And it all coordinates back to our bags and accessories. So it's been a really fun project to expand the brand into the two different apparel lines. You're definitely speaking my language there for that with the comfort thing. That is that is my go-to right there. Liz, Derek, before I let you go, got New York Comic Con coming up, obviously. So what are you most excited about for fans to see or experience, not just at New York Comic Con, but beyond as well? What's some exciting stuff that you can actually tell us about? Because I know there's some stuff you can't tell us about. I think we've announced most of yeah, the, the bags that are coming out. Yeah, so I'm always excited about our exclusives. We try to do, you know, some really cool different stuff, special stuff for our exclusives. I think the cons for us are great because we love to... All of our booths are always manned by actual employees of Loungefly, whether it's sales reps or our social and marketing team, our creative team, everybody gets involved. So what's fun for us is everyone that comes to purchase from the booth is chatting with the team, telling them what they love, telling what they think we're missing, which is always important. So cons in general, we always love that we're like surrounded by our people and the community. So we love whether it's SDCC, NYCC, Designer Con, D23, it's always great for us as a brand. And I think what we're most looking forward to right now is some of the expansion that's going to be happening later in 23 with things like stationary pets. And we do have a new line that we're going to be debuting, hopefully around San Diego Comic-Con time that we're really excited about that we can't talk too much about yet. But, but just think inclusivity. Yes. For bags, larger not, and larger not just backpacks. mini backpacks, yeah. right? So, and it's not so much like it, it, it's taking more along the line of the strategy of the apparel and expanding that truly into accessories, right? Not everyone's a mini backpack customer, yeah. right? So you may like the Loungefly look and aesthetic, but maybe there's some larger size accessories that could work within that too. We've done a great job covering all the fandoms and making sure that we're hitting like what people are fans of. Now we're looking to make sure that we're hitting those silhouettes and those those item types that everybody wants. Yeah. So but for this specific con, I think obviously it's an opportunity for us to get close with Funko too. And actually we do these bundles that are never uh, offered anywhere except for usually cons or online. So this year, our poppin' bag is Zero's Doghouse. And then the pop that goes with it is Zero. So it's like an exclusive version of that. That's only sold on the Funko side. And it's through the raffle system and and the, the lines and stuff like that. But we have our own like exclusives, bags, and you wallets. You can see all of our NYCC exclusives on our Instagram right now, if you haven't seen them. Hopefully yeah, you already so. follow them. I'm sure that you already do. Really quickly, before I let you go, though, what's the one exclusive that you guys are going, I'm going to need you to take one of those and put it in the back because I'm going to need that later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do. I love the zero in the doghouse with pop because, I mean, it's just amazing it's just there there here's the thing when we do the pop in bags they're the most limited quantities that a pop has ever really made right mm-hmm. pop there's thousands of them thousands of them made it's a pretty limited quantity so that's like always like the craziness part of it is that like i always kind of joked like when we would sell them on our booth like i know everyone here wants their pop but you kind of have to buy a bag first so mm-hmm. thank you anyways but like so i would say that like that's pretty exciting for us overall but like for our exclusives i think some of the fun stuff that we're able to do is you know oh rex 
Yeah, like I was saying, like our cosplays do so well, right? That's that's always like what we're known for. The majority is the cosplays, and like our Rex backpack has got these little arms that (laughs) move. (laughs) We did. There's like there's like a coveted Rex bag. You know, people in the Loungefly community they have their Loungefly Grails of bags that they want to have in their collection, and there's some an older rec style from toy story that everyone loves and so we wanted we thought a good exclusive would be to like refresh and give those fans something new like we said we pay attention we see everyone hunting for that one so there's um, a really cool new version of of rex coming that i think is a, a huge improvement on the last one so that might be my favorite or dr finkelstein's pretty cool too yeah there's a lot i mean esmeralda with her tambourine coin bag I mean, for me, I'm always a big Star Wars fan. So there you go. I've just been a Star Wars fan since very, very little. We have an Asajj Ventress. I mean, I liked, I loved the Clone Wars. So Asajj Ventress is so exciting. I think we have the we have um, is the Boba Skull Fett? Rock. Yeah, we we have the Boba so, Fett. So so I collect comics. So I have all the droids and Ewoks. So the Boba Fett from Droids, which was that blue and yellow mm-hmm. version, we had an exclusive of that too. And there's also a pop pin because we actually are the, the, the side that does the, because we have so many pins. We actually do the development for Funko on the pop pins that they sell too. So they have a one that's going to match our bag. Oh, and we have Star-Lord uh, T'Challa. Star-Lord, yeah. Star-Lord in the What If series. Yeah. So uh-huh. Star-Lord T'Challa, yeah. So what they're saying is there's a lot to choose from. Yeah, I don't know if we could ever like pick 10 a, of them. <laughs> I think we could pick a favorite. I think if I had to, it would probably be either Zero or Rex for me. For you, it would probably be Star Wars, huh? Yeah. yeah. And, and you can't blame them. So if you're going by New York Comic Con, make sure you're saying hello to them at their booth. Make sure you check out the rest of the Funko booth as well. Follow them on social media. And they've just got so many great stuff coming. I mean, we could talk for hours about this. But they've, they've got stuff to do. It's Liz Silva and Derek Baca. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for Thank having you. us appreciate and taking the time to talk about Loungefly. We appreciate it. I don't know about you, but I'm super, super excited for the future of Loungefly, especially if it's what I think it is. And I'm not going to speculate, but, you know, as somebody who, you know, a small backpack really doesn't do much for me, even though I love the Loungefly stuff. If we get it a little bit bigger, that might be something. That might be something that I would definitely be interested in but i mean if you ever see them at a con go up to the lounge fly booth and just see all the amazing things that they have also if you find if you have a local shop that sells lounge fly stuff a small shop support that as well because there are people putting their heart and soul into these smaller shops with funko and lounge fly and they definitely deserve your support if you're a fan anyway go ahead and find your shop and support them because it's really Really important. Again, thanks to Liz De Silva and Derek Bacher for joining me to talk about Loungefly. Up next, going to get a little spooky and talk about Werewolf by Night on Disney Plus from Marvel Studios. I'll do some spoilers for that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. 
Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. This is comic book creator Jerry Conway, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Something very wicked and very different has arrived from Marvel Studios. Werewolf by Night is now streaming, and I'm going to do a spoiler-ish review of this. So there'll be some spoilers, but nothing major or anything like that. And one thing that really I loved about this right off the bat was that it was so different. Right from the vibe that was created immediately by the opening of this thing, it was just so, so different. And it, it was like it was telling you, this is Marvel Studios but it's not. This is not something you're going to find from a typical Marvel Studios project. And I think that's, that's the thing I loved about it the most. Not that I don't love Marvel Studios. I think we all do. But at the same time, it's like, okay, you're looking for something a little bit outside of the box. And they kind of step their toe outside of the box, but not completely outside of the box at times. And this one just felt freaking completely outside of the box. And I understand that maybe there's some people that are criticizing it for that very reason, too. You didn't like it because, you know, you're expecting something grandiose. You're expecting something big and huge in this massive production. And in a way, it was. But in a way, it also wasn't. Because what I saw with my eyes was a little bit more leaning on the practical effects, which is something you can't always do in a Marvel Studios project. Never mind that they don't want to do it. It's like sometimes you just can't do those practical effects. So you get to see that. A little bit more in Werewolf by Night. You get to see just intriguing character after intriguing character. Especially when you're following the Bloodstone family. And of course this whole thing centers around who's going to have the Bloodstone next. And Elsa Bloodstone who's played by Laura Donnelly. Who if you've listened to the show at all ever you know I love. So it's hard for me to not love her in this as well as she plays Elsa Bloodstone. So you get to see how disassociated she is from her family. How different she is from her family as well and just the way that she approaches things a little bit differently and this the other one of the other things I love about this is that it doesn't waste any time it's a little bit less than an hour long and maybe you're thinking well that's not that's not enough you know where's my backstory on these characters where's the where's the foundation you didn't really need it I didn't think because of the pace of this thing and how it kind of jumped right in. It set the tone for the Bloodstone family, I thought, pretty well. I thought you pretty much knew, you know, what the history was and what was going on there. I thought that the narration in the beginning was perfect. It had that perfect, you know, classic, you know, TV horror vibe thing going for it in the early going, even almost like a like an old school radio show type two sort of thing. So I, I, I liked that as well, that that really set the tone. I thought that the bl- black and white throughout was a really, really good choice. And what this felt like to me, was a high-end B-movie. If you're not old enough to know what a B-movie is, Google it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But that's exactly what you had here, is you had a high-end B-movie. And it was a little bit more violent than your typical Marvel Studios project, too. Not that that's important to me or anything. I don't need that in my Marvel Studios projects, but there's a couple of moments in here anyway, at least I thought in the action sequences, where you you're a little bit surprised about you know oh so okay yeah that's what I just saw in a Marvel project that that's something that I certainly didn't expect certainly not a Marvel plus Disney project anyway this one's probably the darkest one so far I mean Moon Knight was pretty dark too but I think this one's gonna step above that a little bit especially when you meet some of the monster hunters and things like that very eccentric characters and well another character that I really loved was. Harriet Sans- Sansom, excuse me, Harriet Sansom Harris's character of 
Verusa because I'm like, I knew BB from Frasier was evil. I knew it this whole time. And it's, it's just, she plays a very evil. It's like the worst mom ever. Let's just put it that way. That's, that's kind of where she's at with this family. And, and she, you dislike her immediately too, which is something else that I really, really loved. Is she like, oh, I really, you, you don't say this about characters often, probably like, yeah, I really hope she kind of gets hers in the end. Also getting to see man thing was really, really cool. I loved the way that they designed that character in this. I don't know. You call it a series movie, limited movie, you know, mini series, whatever I would call it a mini movie. That's what I would kind of call it. I think And his relationship with Jack Russell, I thought was a really key and interesting part of this too. And that, that was the only levity in this entire series. I thought, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Gael Garcia Bernal's portrayal of Jack Russell. I thought it was really neat. I thought that the way they designed their werewolf character, again, practical and really, really neat. Could they have done it completely differently? Could they have CGI'd it up and really, really presented this big over-the-top thing? Absolutely. But what it was, it, his the, the portrayal of that was much like the character itself in Werewolf by Night that was presented, and that is grounded. You get to see a very grounded and human side of Jack Russell and the way he kind of builds a bond with Elsa and how their character interaction changes rapidly throughout this, I thought was a really, really neat way to go. So I, I'm, I'm sorry, but you know, I'm not going to apologize for loving this. And this is one that I was, I had high expectations for too. And I hate it when I do that to myself, I build something up in my head as far as a show or a movie. Then I see it and I go, wow, you know, it could have been so much more than it actually was because I built it up hoping it would be some what I thought it would be. But this really lived up to being so different, to being that, you know, just on the edge of, of horror. Because I think it, it's horror, but it's not quite all the way there. It's it's almost like light horror, if you want to put it that way. There's nothing super scary about it, I didn't think. I didn't think it was very gory or anything like that. There, There's a line there. But it's a it's a big line for Marvel Studios, not necessarily for horror in general, but for Marvel Stu- Marvel Studios, I felt like okay, yeah, there's a line, and they didn't quite cross it as far as a horror genre is concerned. But I thought that they definitely crossed it as far as Marvel Studios is concerned. And I think this is the kind of thing I want to see Marvel Studios do every now and then. I don't want to see Marvel Studios become this completely because I don't think that's productive. I think what I want to see is them do these outside the box type projects every now and then to kind of make us go, oh, they can do that too. Because these there's some great storytellers that are involved in Marvel Studios and they really, really know how to pick them too. I mean, I thought Heather Quinn, Peter Cameron, Jerry Conway all did such a great job. Of course, Jerry Conway, the the, the creator of this character, I thought that everybody, including director, director Michael Giancino, did such a great job of bringing this thing to life and just saying, you know what, we're going to do something different. Here you go, love it or hate it sort of thing. And if you hate it, that's fine. But I think just making this so different, so unique, and giving us characters that we don't see in the MCU ever was something really, really cool. So yeah, I would highly recommend Werewolf by Night if you haven't watched it already. It is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. That's going to do it for my spoiler-ish review of Werewolf by Night. Up next, we'll talk to C.J. Box about his brand new Cassie Duell novel, Treasure State. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Van Jensen, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Well, if you're a fan of Big Sky on ABC, you might already know this guy's work. He's the New York Times best-selling author, and yes, Cassie's story is continuing with Treasure State. That it's Treasure State, excuse me. That is his new book. It's author C.J. Box. C.J., how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So, C.J., this is the seventh book. If you correct me if I'm wrong, in Cassie's stories, what is it about this character that just keeps fans coming back? She's a very in a very likable, very empathetic type character. She's not any kind of superwoman. She does. She's not one of those women that too many men authors write who just you know beat people up and shoot them down. She's very normal. She's in her 40s. She's a little overweight. She's often overlooked and underestimated. But when she's got a case, she's kind of a bulldog about it, and she tends to outwork and outthink other people to get to the bottom of things. And much like you talk about her being relatable, and just like you know, you, I, or any of your readers, you know, we all change over the years in certain ways. So, how do you think that this particular character has evolved over the years for you? She was introduced in a book called The Highway quite a few years ago, a series kind of ostensibly about a, a guy named Cody Hoyt. And halfway through the book, Cassie appears. And at the time, she's a deputy sheriff working in Helena, Montana. She's kind of questioning what she's doing and how she's doing it in, in pretty much you know, an all-male world. And she continues on as, in another sheriff's department and then decides to open her own private investigations firm in Bozeman, Montana. And this book finds her with her new firm in a new location, and the, the business is going great to the point where she has to keep hiring new people to, to help out. So she certainly changed from her introduction till now. No doubt about that. It's actually been, I think, about three years since Bitterroots was, was released. So we kind of see some of the impacts of that story in Treasure State as well. A little bit. The, the, the cases in this Treasure State are, are wholly different, as well as the location for the stories, where Bitterroots took place kind of in northwestern Montana in the Bitterroot Range. All the action in um, Treasure State takes place in Butte and Anaconda and Helena, Montana which is more southern. Now, what's cool about this, CJ, is you live in, Mo- you live in Wyoming, so you're, you're right there close to that. All these stories set in Big Sky Country. What is it about this setting that makes these stories so different and so compelling? Well, I think it's just because there still is a real interest for a lot of people in, uh, you know, whether it's mythic or not, the American West, where they can maybe, you know, possibly move to and live out their dreams and it's low population and kind of low maintenance areas. It's uh, little towns that I thought were kind of fading away or suddenly now bursting at the seams with new residents who have moved here. The place I live in, Wyoming, last year, last summer, there were 29 real estate agents trying to sell the one available house still in the area. Wow. So people have really moved and shifted around, and I try to reflect that in Treasure State as well. You definitely reflect a lot of things in these books for sure. But as an author, it's interesting because you don't have the benefit of an artist to create the canvas for you like comic book writers and and things like that do. So when you're talking about such a beautiful setting, how difficult is it really for you, especially as somebody that lives it, to actually create that theater of the mind from somebody who who may never have seen it before? Well, I always go there. I'm I'm a real believer in hands-on research for every book whether it's the Joe Pickett series or for the Cassie Duell ones. And I, I always make it a point, even though I've been there many times, to go there and try to look at places with fresh eyes and put on my old reporter hat 
and you know walk around and talk to people and overhear conversations and visit the the local highlights and really try to get that sense of authenticity to the place and then replicate that on the page take a lot of notes take a lot of photos and then when i get back and get started it's 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 right there in front of me well, my wife's been trying to get me to go to Montana for years now, CJ, so I think that these, these books are a good step in the right direction of, of, of convincing me, not that I need much convincing. <laughs> <laughs> well, in these books, a lot of people die, but that's not necessarily the case in yeah, your life. Yeah, I'm thinking that's probably not what's, what's happening a ton in, in, in the, in the uh, Anaconda <laughs> area. Hopefully not. <laughs> so, CJ, you actually have a couple of different cases for Cassie in Treasure State, which I think is really neat. What kind of made you decide to have these dueling storylines here? That's where I always start, is, is with usually like a, something in the news, a controversy, a theme that is being discussed in the West, and then I, then I usually add another plot element to it, and then you know, kind of do the research on those things, and then kind of do a bullet point outline from the beginning till the end, and then, then write on top of that outline. And in this case, and this is Cass- Cassie's case, I should say, the first one is that she gets – several years ago, there was a, a guy in the West out of Santa Fe named Forrest Fenn, and he wrote a treasure-hunting poem and said that he had hidden somewhere $2 million in gold and jewelry – and if you paid close attention to this poem that he wrote, it would reveal the location of that. And that resulted in eight years of people treasure hunting all over the West, all over the Rocky Mouth, Mountains, the Southwest. Five people died trying to find this treasure. And then finally, two years ago, it was found in Wyoming by someone who followed the clues or interpreted the clues in the, in the poem. And it really was kind of getting to be a big deal when it was finally found. Some people were questioning whether it was ever out there, that sort of thing. So I've replicated that treasure hunt in this book with a poem of my own that's posted in Montana and hundreds of treasure hunters all over. And in this case, Cassie is hired by the guy who wrote the poem and hid the treasure, challenging her to locate and find and identify him because he knows that if people know who wrote it, they're more likely to find the treasure. I do love that. And I'm a sucker for a good treasure hunt anyway, so you, you pretty much had me from the beginning right there. But I want you to talk about your antagonist for a second, because, I mean, if you can even call them that, we'll call them clients in this, in this case a little bit. So I feel like they're both very enigmatic sure. in very, very different ways. So how would you describe them to anybody coming into Treasure State? The, the writer of the poem and the, and the, yeah. the, uh, the, the, the Florida woman as well. Right. That's the other case. Cassie's contacted by a woman in South Florida who says that she fell head over heels with a man down there who convinced her to turn over her $7 million fortune and then who vanished the very next day. And this woman, this client, believes that this guy moved back to his hometown in Montana, which is why she hires Cassie. So yeah, in in the case of the, the treasure hunt poem author, Cassie tells by a couple of interactions that she has with him or, or determines that he's probably an author of some kind. So that sort of narrows the search. So that means she travels across the state interviewing authors and meets there. That was a lot of fun to write because that was based on some people I know and people I maybe don't necessarily like author by author to try to determine who that is. And then she finally 
narrows down on on who it is. And as far as the missing money and the woman, she find Cassie finds out that this it's a pattern for this con man who's done this to seven or eight different women across the country and taken all of their money. Through hard work, she begins to figure out probably where he is and who he is. They're both very, very interesting stories, too. You talk about putting your reporter hat on a couple minutes ago. I wanted to go back to that a second, because does that kind of help you also get in the mind of the private investigator? Obviously, you're the author. You know what the end game is. You know what the story is going to be, but you have to be that storyteller of, well, here's how it's going to go, and here's the the twists and the turns and things that can go wrong, things that can go right. Does it kind of help you get into that mindset? It really does, because that's that's the thing about mysteries that – are, are I think I think are, are so appealing and so interesting is that through the investigation, the reader gets to know not only the characters very well, but also the place and the location and the culture, uh, you know, question by question, answer by answer. That's pretty much what a reporter does, a good one. And, and that is, you know, to really discover the truth behind what's going on. And, and it just takes... It's kind of some dogged investigation and and no agenda going in. Absolutely. We're talking to New York Times bestselling author C.J. Box of Treasure State, which, of course, you can get now wherever books are sold. Now, you've got a lot of great characters outside of Cassie, outside of the two that we already mentioned. Who are some of your favorite secondary characters in this book specifically? Well, there's a a, a guy, a kid named Kyle Westergaard, who was actually introduced in the book Badlands many years ago. And, in, and when he's in that book, he's in his teens. He's, he's got fetal alcohol syndrome, mild fetal alcohol syndrome. He rides around this little frozen town in North Dakota on his bike, but he listens and he watches and he observes. And he is a very appealing character to me to, to write about. And I wanted to bring him back. And he shows up. He happens to be one of the treasure hunters. Which is very, very interesting as well. But how do you decide... Because obviously when you're seven books in, you've got so many characters that you can draw from. How do you make that decision to be like, okay, we haven't seen this character in a while, but they would fit really good here. How do you decide who comes back and when like that? It's kind of just like, you know, who still has a story and who do I miss? And I'd like to have back around. And in in this case, Kyle was actually in three of the books and then wasn't in the in Bitterroots, the last one. And I just thought it was time to bring him back, because he and Cassie have a special bond that was established many years and many books ago. Absolutely. Now, CJ, you've been on a bit of a book tour recently. We're just in Bozeman, as a matter of fact, to, to, to interact with fans there. What's the fan reaction been like so far for Treasure State? It's been excellent, I've got to say. You know, I've been lucky enough that the books have been, all of the books have been pretty successful. But... I think this one's a real fan favorite, partially because of the ending, which I won't reveal. But it was a fun book to write. It's not as dark as some of them I have put out, like The Highway and others that are very, very dark. This one is not necessarily dark. It's kind of, in my mind, kind of joyful. Go off of that, though. You've got plenty of ideas. We know you do. We we want to know where this story is going next. So what's what's next for Cassie? What can you tell us? Well, I, I can tell you that there will probably... I'm sure there will be another Cassie Duell book. I'm, my daughters will make me write one, even if I don't feel like it. But, you know, a couple couple years down the road, there'll be some, some other things that will bubble up. We'll see how her journey continues. Well, you had to wait about three years for Treasure State, and it was definitely worth the wait. So you can get it right now from Minotaur Books. 
wherever books are sold. There's also, I believe, an audio version of that of this as well. You can get an, the audiobook version as well. But this is a really fun story that I think you're really going to want to dive into. CJ Box, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's fun. And if you're already a fan of the Cassie Duel novels anyway, and you probably are, this one definitely does. I agree with CJ. It has a lot lighter vibe, and there's a lot of fun to be had here. But there's also so much intrigue to this story, not just the treasure hunt, but the other story as well. And then you just get a little bit more, you, you get a little bit more into Cassie's life, I feel like, a little bit in this book too. And just, you can almost close your eyes and picture exactly where they're at. The detail that CJ Box goes into and just describing the settings of this novel and of his of his other novels in general. It's just incredible. So if you've never been to Montana, he kind of takes you there in the first place. So make sure you're getting Treasure State wherever you get your books. And maybe this makes you want to go pick up some of the other Cassie Duel novels as well, kind of catch up to her story because there's certainly a lot of it out there. Again, thanks to CJ Box for joining me to talk about Treasure State. Up next, not a ton of nerd news coming out of the early days of New York Comic Con, but I will definitely talk about some trailers. I'll do that next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Tara Strong, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Heading to the Mushroom Kingdom, it's time for nerd news. And, you know, New York, New York Comic Con, obviously, this weekend, not a lot of big stories break early on in the week, so I'll have a recap of anything big that happens at New York Comic Con next week on the podcast, especially when we could talk about stuff with spoilers and everything like that and get a little bit more depth in it too. But yeah, there were some trailers that came out that I want to talk about. And yeah, we're going to start with the Super Mario Brothers, the movie trailer. Of course, the movie going to be coming out from Illumination on April the 7th of this coming year. And okay, I'm just going to jump into the elephant in the room right away. Let's talk about Chris Pratt for a second, okay? First of all, it's not his fault. And I think I said this before. Chris Pratt took a role, okay? It's not his fault that he's not Italian. It's not his fault that he's not Charles Martinet. And yeah, maybe should they have hired Charles Martinet? Probably. I mean, that's that's probably the way they should have gone, but the studio wanted a name and they got one. So, I mean, it's, you can't whine about it now. And no, they're not going to recast it. That would be, that's a lot more difficult than just redoing some of the some of the visuals from Sonic or all of the visuals from the Sonic movie. That took a lot of time, I'm sure, and it took a lot of money. But I mean, the amount of time it would take to, to re- record all of Mario's lines? No, that's that's just not happening. So you can just flush that idea immediately because that's not happening. So basically this is, you're either going to live with it or you're not sort of thing. And if this takes you out of this movie, then, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I, I'm in the camp that thinks that they probably should have hired Charles Martinet in the first place. I think that that would have been, that would have been great. They didn't, yeah, so I'm dealing with it. And Chris Pratt, I like Chris Pratt, Okay. Do I think he's been perfect in everything he's been in? Absolutely not. Do I think that, you know, it's a little bit of a fish out of water with this thing? Yeah, maybe. But I think you're getting Chris Pratt for his personality more than his vocals. I think that we can say that, right? And again, not that Charles Martinet doesn't have that personality. He does. But we got to get off of that. You got to leave that in the past, okay? It's like not getting Kevin Conroy as Batman. You might want it, but in this particular sense... You know, there have been other care. There have been other actors that have done a very good Batman over the years in animation and in video games and things like that. So even though you didn't get Kevin, you still got a good performance out of these actors. So you've got to kind of approach it this way. I know that you've got this this idea of who you think Mario is, and I am right there with you. But at some point, you got to move on and give this a chance and see what happens because you never know. It, it, it just might end up 
working out. And I do love the fact, though, they're not forcing Chris Pratt to try and do an Italian accent because, and I'll tell you why, because I don't know that I want to hear that. I don't. I think it would be more disrespectful if Chris Pratt goes into that recording booth and says, I'm going to try and do an Italian accent. I'm going to try and sound like Mario. I'm going to try and sound like Charles Martinet. I think that would be a bigger slap in the face than what they're doing with this, where you've got a little bit, you've got that hint of the Brooklyn accent in there, which I don't hate. You know, it gives you kind of 90s Mario series vibes, right? So I don't, I don't hate that they're doing it that way. I think that that's kind of the only way they can do it voice-wise, right? So let's just kind of take it for what it is and, and be happy that we're getting this thing in the first place, especially by Illumination, who knows how to make good animated movies. And I don't think we've had a good Mario movie or show, really, that's really good yet. I've got a soft spot for the animated series from my youth, sure. But was it awesome? Do I see it as an adult and go, ugh? You know, yeah, a little bit. So I think that you've just got to be happy that we're getting this thing. And visually, it looks friggin' stunning. And it's a little bit more intense than I kind of expected, too, by the way. You see that beginning with Bowser and everything like that? First of all, Jack Black as Bowser. That worked out, huh? At least it seems like it's gonna, in the early going, that looks like it's really gonna work out. Because those are the two characters that we kind of got focused on the most in this teaser was Bowser and Mario. Those were the two that you got. You get a little bit of Toad as well, but... We don't really get to see much of anything. You get to see Luigi, but not really hear anything much from Luigi. So we'll get more about that in future trailers, I'm sure. But visually, this thing looks like it's going to be really, really good. And there's just there's also that thing that Illumination does really well, where they blend the serious and the comedy together. And it, you kind of see that presented in this teaser. So I think that if I was to... I would say I was more impressed by this trailer than I expected. I didn't think that it was going to be something where I would be super angry about Chris Pratt as Mario because I kind of made my peace with it already. And, you know, we got to stop dumping on Chris Pratt, too, because one of these days we're going to lose him. As he's just going to be like, you know what? Screw you. I'm not acting anymore. And he's he's got a good personality. He's got a good vibe. He's He seems like a good dude. I've never met him. He seems like a good dude. So... We really need to try and stop dumping on Chris Pratt because he doesn't deserve most of the flack that he gets. I'm just going to put that out there right now. But this Mario movie, I think, based on what I've seen, has at least a chance to be really special and something that we could see multiple sequels for and spinoffs and things like that because that's what Illumination can bring to the table. So I'm so glad that they got their hands on this project. And we'll just have to wait for April and see what happens. My son's excited for it. I'm going to take my son to the theater to see it. I think that that's going to, I mean, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that more than I am about the actual movie. So, you know, that's just something that you got to keep in mind. The anger doesn't stop there because we've got the Velma teaser that, that kind of dropped. And of course, Velma has been in the news a lot because it, it they've released the fact that Velma's going to be a lesbian in this series. And of course, she's, she's a person of color in this series as well. Mindy Kaling bringing her to life in this show. First of all, I'm not going to address any of that because it's not my place to address any of that. You know, you can have your view on that if you want to. Go ahead, knock yourself out. You know, I'm not going to be screaming back and forth with you on social media. It's just not productive for me or anybody else, by the way. But what I will say is, keep in mind, this is an adult animated series. This is not a Scooby-Doo sequel, spinoff, anything like this. This is an adult animated series that's kind of its own thing, it seems like. So, you know, leave it alone sort of thing. And, I, and what I mean by leave it alone is let it be what it is, okay? You can either watch it or not, 
but let it be what it is. And if you don't want to give it a chance because of Velma's sexuality or the, the, the color of her skin or anything like that, that's, hey, do you. I don't agree with you, but do you, okay? If that's going to take you outside of it, then, then, then fine. Just don't bitch about it on social media if you don't watch it because we don't want to hear it. Now, if it ends up being bad, it's, it's bad, okay? That's the other thing. If, it, if, if this show ends up coming out and it's just not good, then it's not good. It's not good because of those reasons. It's just not good. So you, I'm gonna. This, I'm, I'm certainly gonna be one of those people that's gonna judge this show for what it is, and not who's bringing it to me or the person's sexuality, anything like that. I'm just gonna judge it by the show. But I will say this: they took all that negativity that came out before you even saw a still of the character. Never mind a trailer. You take all that negativity, you wrap it up, and you put it in the first teaser. And I thought that that was so, so smart. You know, of course, you, you see Velma, you know, writing an angry tweet or writing an angry message to HBO Max. I thought that was funny. I thought that voice-wise, I think that Mindy Kaling nails it as the voice of Velma. I think that she brings a, at least a somewhat familiarity to the character in that voice. So I felt I certainly, if I was to close my eyes, and say, I would say that's Velma. And I, that just based on the voice alone, that's exactly who I would think. It was, but there also seems like there's more of a exuberance, more of a youthful vibe to the character as well than we've seen in the past too, and, and a little less stuffy. And they, don't yell at me because that character could be very stuffy at times, and I think that this kind of loosens the character of Velma up a little bit. That's certainly been done in other presentations of Velma that we've seen in the past. I'm not saying it's never been done, but at the same time, this this might be a little bit of a different vibe for Velma than we're used to seeing. And I think that this will definitely be a more violent and surprising Scooby-Doo type show than we've seen before. But I don't, I actually don't go into this feeling like it's a Scooby-Doo series. I go into this thinking it's a Velma series and it's going to be similar, but it'll take some elements from the Scooby-Doo story. But I think that this is really going to be something that's going to take a story life all of its own. So again, that's how I'm going to judge this show based on how the story is because visually it's it's fine. Visually the the animation looks fine. I don't think there's anything fantastic about it. I don't think there's anything that's bad about it at all. So the, it kind of is what it is. That's not going to be the thing that makes me decide how good the show is. It's going to be the story and the elements that come through with it. So we'll just have to find out in 2023. We don't have a re release date for this yet for HBO Max. We'll keep you posted on that, of course, in future episodes. So last tra trailer I wanted to talk about, and then this will be it because, again, there's no huge news stories to talk about. I'm not just going to talk just to talk. Slumberland from Netflix. The movie's going to be coming out on November the 18th. And what caught my eye about this was it's this young girl who is kind of, she, she ends up having to go live with her uncle because she used to live in a lighthouse and her dad is now gone, and it's it's kind of starts out as a sad story. And Marlo Barkley, who we're introduced to as Nemo, the girl's name is Nemo. You you see that you know which this is a girl that just wants to see her dad again. The dad played by Kyle Chandler, too, by the way, with an epic mustache, which made me immediately love the trailer and made me love Kyle Chandler even more, if that's even possible. So it's like her uncle's trying, right? But you could tell her uncle's one of those people. It's like, yeah, I never had kids. I'm not used to having kids around all the time sort of thing. So it's like he's trying, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, this isn't working. But then when she goes to sleep, she finds herself in this dream world, and she meets Flip, who is played by Jason Momoa. And then that's when things really get, like, super just crazy eccentric, and, you know, Flip's kind of a loose cannon, and she goes through, and he, he and Nemo go through all these different 
you know, dream worlds together. There's nightmares that they have to run away from. And basically to do all this, to be able to get something that will let her have basically one wish. That's kind of a, you know, pedestrian way of putting it. But that's the gist is that you can have one thing. And of course, what's the one thing that Nima wants? She wants to see her dad. So that's why she's going through this whole world and there's rules to then rules are made to be broken in this world as well. And you just see these crazy visuals and action sequences throughout this entire trailer. I'm not going to sit here and explain it all or, you know, give you the visual. You could see the trailer for yourself, of course, but this is just a visual feast for one. And for two, it's just such, this is, you could tell Jason Momoa is having a blast. That's just, that's just the gist of it right there. You can just tell this is Jason Momoa having fun and the chemistry between he and Marlo as Nemo, I think even in the trailer was just off the charts good for me. So I'm really looking forward to just having fun with this. It doesn't look like it's going to be super dark. It doesn't look like it's going to be super serious, but it also looks like there are going to be elements of that as well. This looks like something that's a real going to be a really, really good family movie. And I, I just really, really, this is also based on the book by Winston, Winston McRae, by the way, if you're thinking, Oh, this sounds familiar. Yeah, that's exactly where it's from. And this is also done by the people that did a couple of the hunger games movies as well. So keep that in mind when you're watching this, but just visually it looks stunning. I, I love the vibe of it. I think that the characters are really, really great. Just in my initial gut reaction, that I see from this trailer, and I'm super excited for this. So if you're sleeping on this one, Slumberland is something you should definitely be adding to your list on Netflix because I think it has a chance to be really special. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Liz DeSilva and Derek Bacher for joining me to talk about Loungefly. Also to CJ Box talking about Treasure State. You can get you know your Loungefly stuff, whether you're still at New York Comic Con, you could do it there, or of course you can follow them on social media, find out your local find your local shop too by the way to get your lounge fly stuff and also treasure state wherever you get your books from that's from cj box of course and make sure you're following us on social media at down and nerdy podcast on excuse me at down and nerdy 757 on twitter and instagram that's at down and nerdy pod on tiktok and at down and nerdy on facebook but it's, it's just easier to go to down and nerdy podcast.com and just get everything there also make sure you're subscribing wherever you get your podcast we're a proud member of the Realm Network. Got something really special for Realm coming up on the show next week. Looking forward to bringing that to you. And just again, thank you for your support as always. I really, really appreciate it. And remember this, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.